All right, Jeremiah chapter 11. Jeremiah chapter 11. We worked a little bit on Jeremiah 11 on Wednesday. We didn't get, we didn't finish the chapter. Now, of course, the goal is to finish the entire book of Jeremiah by the end of August, and obviously we're not making good progress, but we are knocking out chapters in a a relatively fast pace. The goal here is not so much verse by verse, at the same time, trying to pick and choose how depth, how in-depth to go on each section is always a little bit of a struggle because there's so much going on in the book of Jeremiah that creates so many theological difficulties. And uh, we kind of, we found ourselves a little bit with one on Wednesday. Now, the events of Jeremiah chapter 11, most believe, happen or is referencing kind of the reaction and how things are happening right after the reforms that occurred under Josiah, all right? Josiah came in, all these reforms, get rid of the idolatry, try to make everything right, and when you turn to Jeremiah chapter 11, we see really quick that the people are trying to do what? Go right back to the idolatry. So that gave us the opportunity to really talk about three very important words on Wednesday, which is reformation, transformation, conformity, all right? And that, and what I, I put forth as my hypothesis is that a lot of people's Christianity is really nothing more than reformation, where you reform some behavior. Well, I'm going to change a little bit of my behavior. Or you're just conforming to now the new culture that you find yourself, right? Now, if you're raised in it, you're kind of just forced into conformity, right? You don't really have a choice. You conform to that way of thinking that you you have no choice. And then if you become a Christian, it only takes a little while that you're kind of told, this is what you say, this is what you do, this is what you don't do, this is how you act, this is what you're supposed to like, this is what you're supposed to dislike. And it, whether you agree or disagree, you'll, many people will just kind of cave to that pressure. So what we found out is obviously it's very important. Reformation last, doesn't last, right? Because reformation seems to focus primarily on what? External behavior, okay? Conforming that that may that really only lasts until maybe your peer group or your the, the things around you change. So none of those things are of, of great value. Transformation is really what we want, and that that leads to well, how does transformation occur? And then you've got some very different answers to that question depending on your theological background. That transformation question really leads us to a different theological problem that we are going to find in Jer- well well we really find throughout the entire book all right so let's approach this before we start just reading through Jeremiah 11 and hopefully we can get through the entire chapter before the next hour we'll see it's only 23 verses i can just read it relatively quick but before we do that and i kind of mentioned this last night on the podcast because there's kind of a new problem that begins to emerge, all right? So I, I wrote it down in my journal this way, all right? Because I think, I think it's important. When it comes to, well, how, how can we say this? How responsible or how involved is God when it comes to the condition of a nation or the condition of an individual? How involved or how responsible is God when it comes to the condition of a person or of a nation? Because this really kind of comes back to the transformation question, right? We know reformation 
and conforming, that's a very human element, right? Reforming people, it doesn't matter. the any, Anybody can have a reformation, right? And obviously people conform all the time. Just go walk by any high school or any university. Conformity is a, is a normal thing. And just even within adults, even within churches, conformity is, a, is the way so many people live their lives by conforming to whatever standard someone places upon you. So those have no real bearing on historical biblical Christianity. Historical biblical Christianity touts itself because of supposed a transformation, right? And most evangelical Christianity in America focuses on a transformation of a practical nature, not of a positional nature, which leads to all kinds of questions. So when it comes to looking in Jeremiah, we are dealing with primarily with the condition of Judah and then a little bit of Israel is mentioned, even though they went into captivity about 100 years prior to Jeremiah. And we see their condition. And what is the condition of Judah? Sin, rebellion, just it's a mess, right? Idolatry, 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 idolatry seems to be the big issue that's repeated over and over and over. It's going to be repeated again in 11 and I think repeated again in 12 and 13 and 14 and 15. It's the issue. So Judah's a mess. Can we all agree on that? All right. Now, how responsible or how involved is God in them being a mess? Now, you got two very different schools of theology, right? One school of theology says something like this. Who brings about repentance? God or man? One school says man, right? Okay. And that man brings about repentance, that they repent on their own, right? And that who brings about faith? That school of thought says man, okay? So then who, then God's involvement in the condition of a man or in the uh, condition of a nation, he's really not involved in any way, shape, or form. He's removed from it, right? He's watching, basically, and going, man, these people, they won't repent. They won't do this. They won't do that. They are a mess. Now, what is the theological presupposition that is the foundation for that view? Right, well, what's, there's a theological presupposition for free will. Free will is not the theological presupposition. It's based upon something else. Okay, okay well, you're, you're going the right direction. Okay, all right, you're going the right direction. Starts with a P. Pelagianism, right, Pelagianism. And Pelagianism says that when it comes to a human being, how are they impacted by the fall? They are not impacted by the fall in any way, shape, or form. Therefore, their nature is, their nature does not impact their will. Their will is completely free from the results of the fall. They are completely free from it. So according to Pelagius, in theory, there can be perfect people even without, even without Christ. Now, that, now, the good thing, I, th- I, I respect Pelagius because at least he's consistent, right? If the will is free, you don't need Christ. All, you get, all I have to do is come to you and say, here's the law, convince you that there is benefits in keeping said law, and then what would you then can just freely obey it and you don't even need Christ, right? That's true Pelagianism. Now, most churches in America are, are semi-Pelagian, 
but they still hold to some of these concepts. They still think that you can, you can, you can, you can, you can. I mean, that's the base, basis. So in that view, when you look at Judah, Israel, and you look at the people, you're like, that's all on the people. Now, on one hand, does that not make you feel better? That, that it's just all on the people? Feel a lot, I mean, philosophically, that makes me feel better, right? I mean, like, okay, well, it's just on the people. Okay, that's, you know, that's good. Now, the question is, well, why, why would the people continue to do that if they're free to just freely? You think someone in the, in the group would be like, hey, guys, let's be perfect because these bad things are happening to us, right? But for some reason, the entire story of the entire Old Testament is a continual story of what? Failure. Failure, 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 failure. And you think that. So you, you're kind of like, well, how, how do we work that? But it does get God off the hook. And if it gets God off the hook, then it makes it easier from a philosophical and theological perspective just to say, huh, the people just won't listen. If they, if they would just fix their problem. Now, the other view is radically different from that, and it creates some serious theological problems, right? Because the other view says, who is responsible for man repenting? God. Who is responsible for man believing? God. So therefore, who's responsible for the condition of Judah and Israel? That, now, on one hand, you're like, well, absolutely, because we're dead in our trespasses and sins, and therefore, it's only God who can bring repentance. It's only God who can bring faith. And we preach it, and it sounds so good until you step back and go... Well, forget you. Why didn't he do it? And the reason I started bringing up these questions is I was listening to a sermon on Jeremiah chapter 11, and the pastor made a comment that God always has a prophet. He always has a pastor to go to the He always will. In other words, God will always have, well, if that means he's always going to ensure that there's going to be one person who's going to be saved and one person who has the message. Well, if he can ensure that there will always be one And like the pastor thought it was a good thing. See, God will always have his Jeremiah. He will always have his Ezekiel. He will always have his Elijah. He will always have his Elisha. He will always have his Paul. And you're like, well, praise God. That's wonderful. But you wouldn't need any of them if you would just make sure the other people were. (laughs) Or God will always ensure that there's a believing remnant. Well, why wouldn't he just make sure there's a believing hole, right? Instead of a remnant. So that raises the question. And most of the time, how do we pretty much handle it in our minds? We ignore it is what we typically do, right? We don't really address it head on because it raises serious questions, right? You're like, hey, God, the problem with the people would be you, So then, then we go with the free will idea. But they go to the free will idea, then you end up back to Pelagianism, which then raises all kinds of problems. Oh, the whole thing. Like, but that, at least that's more philosophically easy to handle, right? You're just like, okay, when people have free will, they're not, they're not bound by sin. Okay, great. You kind of throw out total depravity, but philosophically it's a little easier to process. You bring in God being in charge of it, it's a problem. 
It's a problem. I mean, look, we just look to claim it. It's not a problem. Now, typically, what we just say, usually, it's younger, younger believers will just say, "Well, God is sovereign; He can do whatever He wants," and that sounds good, but it still raises serious questions, right? It may be the answer: God is sovereign; He can do whatever He wants. Now, on one hand, we can acknowledge this: He's under no obligation or responsibility to do what. He doesn't have to save anybody. Right? He's not under any obligation to save anyone, right? Because we're all sinners, therefore we all deserve judgment. But at the same time, he created the world knowing that we were all going to become sinners and did nothing in order to stop. So you see, you just end up in a never-ending philosophical circle that, that for Christians, we kind of just say, well, there's no big deal. But many outside of it look at it and go, do you hear yourselves? Do you hear how whacked out your system is? Like, do you not hear yourself? And, and it offends us when people say that, but we have to be willing to kind of go, yeah, it is kind of messed up. But just because we don't like it or understand it doesn't mean it's not true. In other words, just because it's philosophically troubling does not prove that something is not true. Does that make sense? Philosophically troubling does not determine whether something is true or false. just means that we don't necessarily... <laughs> understand or like it but we should expect that because what are we told over and over that the idea of the scriptures is that God's ways will never be our ways we may never truly comprehend it but it does raise some questions at times because preachers will say things and like do you not realize the implication of that isn't it wonderful that God will always have a Jeremiah and everybody in the congregation says but someone should raise their hand well then why didn't he just make everyone a then the problem solved, right? But nobody in church ever raises their hand and says that. Which, and then you have to ask yourself why? Because you're almost told and trained to do what? Just accept it and never struggle with it. But we need to struggle with it because these are difficulties. Now, with all of that said, now we can go to Jeremiah chapter 11. I don't, and, and you know, you're like, well, what's the answer? I don't have a good answer. I just know this. I can't go with the free will perspective because that destroys total depravity. God's sovereignty, obviously, is the perspective I feel is more biblical, but I am more than willing to acknowledge all of the philosophical problems. I mean, what do I always say? What's the most complicated verse in the entire Bible? Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God. That means all problems are going to be traced back to God. Because if he's all-powerful and all-knowing, he created the very world knowing exactly what was going to transpire. And he could have stopped it anywhere. I mean, he didn't have to create Satan. <laughs> right. Well, for, I mean, well, I mean, like I said, God could do a lot more. Right. Yeah, he could, but he doesn't. Right. Yeah, you get well. You could argue that he did send him a warning. Yeah, you could you could make an argument there, but uh, yeah, no matter no matter how you look at it, when you go when everything when you break everything back, you end up with where in the beginning, God, and then from that point. So so I know the Westminster Confession, the London Baptist Confession, you know, love, love to use the concept of secondary causes to get God off the hook, but who created the secondary cause? God. Who controls the secondary cause? So I know that from a, 
I guess you can try to make a, some kind of a legal argument. Well, God was not directly involved. He was indirectly involved. So therefore, God is off the hook. But when you keep going further and further back, everything is traced right back to God. And which then raises lots of questions because there's times he intervenes, does he not? There's times he's right there. He, he made sure Sarai, Sarah, did not engage in an adulterous relationship with the men who took her. He protected her. Other times, what did he do? He says, go ahead, David. Not going to do anything for you. Not gonna, and not, he could have intervened right there, could he have not? He could have, he intervened to ensure that Abraham did not sacrifice his son, right? He, I mean, there's, there's times he directly intervenes. And then there's other times he's nowhere to be found. And you're like, well, why, why one versus the other? On one hand, he's raising someone from the dead. The other, other hand, he doesn't even bother to go visit John the Baptist when he's in prison and gets his head chopped off. And you're like, what is the deal there? Right? And then you say, well, that's God's sovereign plan. That, that's the answer, I guess. But it's not always philosophically satisfying. Now, well, yeah, Job too. I mean, Job's another one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, yeah, they, they always say, well, see, he used, that's, that, they usually, Job is the classic text of supposedly using a secondary cause, but still who was controlling the secondary cause? God. Those are major issues. All right, but Jeremiah 11, with all of that as the background. Now, let's see how fast we can tear through 23 verses. All right, we've already read a good portion of this, but here we go. Uh, do I? We're starting verse 1. We're going to just go back and, yeah, we're just going to go back and read right through it, okay? Just to try to put it all together so that when we finish, we can say we know Jeremiah chapter 11. All right. Again, we believe this is all in reference or in connection to coming after the reforms of Josiah. All right, here we go. Jeremiah chapter 11, and we read about the reforms of Josiah in what? Second Kings, is it 23? Is it First Chronicles 24, I think? All right. It's, it's those two, there's two passages that speak of them. All right, here we go. Jeremiah 11, 1. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, Hear ye the words of this covenant and speak unto the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And say thou unto them, Thus saith the Lord of God of Israel, Cursed be the man that obeyeth not the words of this covenant. And we could get into a, a whole discussion here about the covenant. But just remember, any covenant that is based off a law premise, right, is always going to end in what? Any covenant that has a law element will always end in what? Failure. Very good. Always will end in failure. Because man is incapable of keeping the law. Okay? Man is incapable of keeping the law. Let's make this very clear. We are incapable of keeping the law before conversion. We are incapable of keeping the law after conversion, and right there will get you thrown out of most churches, okay, because they don't believe that, but it's true, we can't, right, you can't, and so what Christians love to do is water down the law, right, say, well, as long as you're going the right direction, as long, no, 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 the law demands what, perfection, and thought, word, 
desire, feeling, and action, and that must be perpetual, and it must be internal, and it must be external. And Jesus demands the same kind of perfection in the New Testament, and the famous Sermon on the Mount that everyone does horrible crimes against. What does he say in the middle of that sermon? Be ye perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect, demanding absolute perfect obedience. And does, does anyone ever fulfill that? The one who preached the Sermon on the Mount is the only one who ever fulfilled the Sermon on the Mount. The rest of us are always guilty of it. And therefore, in Christ, we do fulfill it. So any covenant that's based off law, you know how it's going to play out. You know the end of the story. It's a spoiler alert. You already know. They're going to fail. Does Israel fail in all of their covenants or any, any part of the covenants that require obedience? How do they always respond to it? With disobedience, right? Okay. Um, it says, and say, uh, and say thou unto them, thus saith the Lord God of, of Israel, cursed be the man that obeyeth not the words of this covenant, which I commanded your fathers in the days that I brought them forth out of the land of Egypt, from the iron furnace, saying, Obey my voice, and do them according to all which I command you. So shall ye be my people, and I will be your God, that I may perform the oath which I have sworn unto your fathers, to give them a land flowing with milk and honey, as it is this day. Then answered I, and said, So be it, O Lord. And if you go back to the Old Testament, is that not how it's played out over and over and over? God says, I'm going to make a covenant with you. And if you do this, what happens? Okay, if you do this, then I will do this for you. And it's always blessing. You get the land. You're going to be prosperous. Everything's going to be wonderful for you. If you do not do these things, you will be cursed. That is straight up law. That's a law-based covenant. That is law. Just You can just write law all over it. If we use the proper distinction of law and gospel, that, and guess what that will do? The law only has a couple of functions. It's going to reveal their sin and condemn their sin and increase their sin, which is, again, something Christians, for some weird reason, in 2023 seems to forget. The law of God increases sin. It does not decrease it. It provokes it. Because our sinful nature, how does it respond to the law? Rebellion, it hates it, and it will say, I'm going to do it just because you told me, just because you told me not to, right? Yeah, I'm going to do it, all right? So that means, obviously, we start seeing, the more you read Jeremiah, you, you, I mean, at some point, you have to just become exhausted. You're like, these people cannot get anything right. It's just rebellion and judgment and judgment and sin and judgment. And so you start thinking, what's the solution? Now, most preachers preached it as what? Hey, this is what Israel did wrong. You guys don't do what they did. Stop doing it. That's how the sermons are preached. Okay? Maybe not so, you know, blunt, but you get the idea. It always turns into, let's look at all of their sins. Now, guys, we should not commit these sins. Are you committing those sins? Do you feel really bad this morning? Well, make sure you tell God you feel really bad about it and stop doing it. And then everybody will be like, amen, that was a beautiful pastor. Uh, That was a beautiful, beautiful pastor. That was a beautiful sermon, pastor. That was a beautiful sermon. And I'm going to do better until the next week. And then what? Just preach it again because the people probably did what that week? They failed, they failed, they failed. 
So then the answer really is, what is the solution to all of these problems? Well, somewhere in Jeremiah, he's going to offer a, a promise, a new covenant, not like the ones I made with your fathers. Okay? Now, that new covenant is a source of massive theological debate, but we know that that's coming if you've read that far. All right. Verse 6. Then the Lord said unto me, Proclaim all these words in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. Hear ye the words of the covenant and do them. Once again, what is Jeremiah, what is he prescribing for them at this point? Law. He's prescribing law as the solution. He's prescribing law as the solution. And law is never the solution. Even though it's still considered the solution. And and, and in fact, I was uh, last night in a sermon that I listened to. They gave, they said, this is what you have to do in order to be saved. You ready? Here's their list of things you have to do in order to be saved. Number one, you have to obey the command to repent. Now, just that's literally the words they used. Now, to say you have to obey a command in order to be saved, that's literally a works-based system. Number two, you have to obey the command to believe. So there's two levels of obedience. Number three, you have to separate yourself from sin and the world. And number four, you have to... uh, You have to choose self-denial and newness of life. Those are the four things you have to do in order to be saved. That was preached by, you know, just your typical kind of evangelical church. And I was like, that's insane. That's like, if, if I was back in the Catholic university, they'd be like, you're good Catholics. That's some good Catholicism right there. Well, we're, I, I don't know why you do. Why stay in evangelical? Just go back to Rome. But you don't want to go back to Rome because guess what? You, got, you, don't, get to, you, don't, get to tell every, you don't get to tell the priest what the Bible means. The priest will tell you what it means because he doesn't really care what you think because you don't have any magisterial authority. And evangelicals don't like that. Right? But isn't that an insane... Literally saying to be saved, you obey. I mean, literally, they use the word obey. Like, I was blown away to hear that in a, like, that's more law-based than most Catholic sermons. Right? But right here, what is he telling them to do? Obey. Obey. All right? I mean, you're getting, you're getting that strong here, are you not? All right, well, again, uh, 11, 7. For I earnestly protested unto your fathers in the day that I brought them up out of the land of Egypt, even unto this day, raising early and protesting, saying, Obey my voice. Verse 8. Yet they obeyed not, nor inclined their ear, but walked everyone in the imagination of their evil heart. Therefore, I will bring upon them all the words of this covenant, which I commanded them to do, but they Are you getting an idea that they did a lot of what? Disobeying. And the Lord said unto me, a conspiracy is found among the men of Judah and among the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Now remember, Reformation had had come, right? There had been Reformation. And then God tells Jeremiah, hey, there's a conspiracy. 
The people are gathering together, and what are they gathering together to do? What do you think? They're going to buy Jeremiah a pastor appreciation gift? Yeah, no, they're, yeah. They are turned back to the iniquities of their forefathers, which refused to hear my words, and they went after other gods to serve them. The house of Israel and the house of Judah have broken my covenant, which I made with their fathers. And they, they were constantly breaking... Anything that required them to do something, they were constantly doing what? Breaking it over and over and over. Verse 11, therefore, thus saith the Lord, behold, I will bring evil upon them, which they shall not be able to escape. And though they shall cry unto me, I will not hearken unto them. Then shall all the cities of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem go and cry unto the gods unto whom they offer incense, but they shall not save them at all in the time of their trouble. Meaning they've disobeyed, they're going to go to the other gods, and then when everything goes bad, they're going to cry out to those other gods, and those other gods are not going to save them because those other gods don't actually exist. All right? Everybody get kind of the basic idea? All right? Um, verse 13, for according to the number of thy cities, where thy gods, where thy gods, or were thy gods, thank you, for according to the number of thy cities were thy gods, O Judah, and according to the number of the streets of Jerusalem, have ye set up altars to that shameful thing, even altars to burn incense unto Baal. Now, basically saying that basically wherever you go, there's what? There's altars. Wherever you go, there's an altar, there's an altar, there's an altar, there's an altar. Meaning that this is just not an isolated rebellion, an isolated idolatry. This is full-blown everywhere. All right, verse 14. Therefore pray not thou for this people, neither lift up a cry or prayer for them, for I will not hear them in the time that the cry unto me for their trouble. God basically tells Jeremiah to do what? Don't bother praying because it is going to be absolutely what? Useless. He's not going to listen. Now that raises, again, some serious philosophical questions, right? What philosophical questions should you be asking at that point? Why wouldn't God answer his prayers and do what? Bring what to the people? Repentance, right? Remember, we got the two schools of thought. If God's in charge of the repentance and faith, why wouldn't God hear Jeremiah's prayer, grant them the repentance and solve all the problem? Now, at the same time, you do realize on the other side, there's still no easy answer because if God has to completely respect man's free will, there's no point in praying for anyone because God can't do anything, right? Because that would be a violation of their, their free will. So that, like, you realize no matter which way you go, you're going to run into some serious philosophical problems. I love people who are like, free will, free will, free will, free will. And they'll be like, let's pray for people. And it's like, why? (laughs) Okay. Why? What do you want me to do? Hey, God, uh, Robert back there, you know, we don't want you to violate his free will. So we're kind of asking you to, well, you really can't do anything. Never mind. I don't know why I'm bothering to pray. Just Robert's going to do what Robert's going to do. Okay. Right? I mean... All you can do is go say, hey, Robert, stop doing it. But God can't do anything beyond that. That's it. That's if you truly believe free will. But it's where sometimes the people who believe in free will pray like they don't believe in free will. And sometimes the people who don't believe in free will 
pray like they believe in free will. It's really kind of awkward because we don't always think it through logically, do we? We don't. And, well, then we end up with all these problems. Okay, what verse did we just stop in? Okay, look at that. We're going to make it. We're going to make it. All right, here we go. Verse 15. What hath my beloved to do in mine house, seeing she hath wrought lewdness with many, and the holy flesh is passed from thee, when thou doest evil, then thou rejoice. The Lord called thy name a green olive tree, fair and of goodly fruit, with the noise of a great tumult. He hath kindled fire upon it, and the branches of it are broken. For the Lord of hosts that planted thee hath pronounced evil against thee for the evil of the house of Israel and of the house of Judah, which they have done against themselves to provoke me to anger and offering incense unto Baal. Once again, what's the major sin here? Idolatry. Once again, there, I mean, it's just, in some, in some ways, by the time you get to, I don't know, I think by the time you get to 11 or 12 or 13, you should start feeling like this is becoming extremely repetitive. Like you, you, at some point you should kind of be, I get the point, but I don't know if we truly get the point. Israel, for all of their existence, what characterized their existence? Idolatry and sin. And 2,000 years of church history, what has characterized the church? Sin and rebellion. Now, we don't want to admit that, right? Because we're like, no, when you become a Christian, you are different. Okay, yeah, okay. And, but what's 2,000 years of church history? Now, how do we play it, though, within Christianity? We have, a, we have an ace up our sleeve that we play within Christianity. No, the, 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 we always explain the 2,000 years of sin by doing what? Pulling out our card, putting it on the table, which says the people who did all of those bad things weren't saved. Isn't that always a great way to get out of it? Anyone who does something bad, we just say, they weren't saved, they weren't saved, they weren't saved. Because saved people only do good things. Right? Don't they? Sarah seems kind of jaded back there. Okay, but most people are, yeah, that's the way we think. And we throw them out. And is that not like a great philosophical way to protect yourself, you know? Because church history is filled with it. And if you really think about God's standard, if you think about God's standard, all of us are guilty of it. Like the thing is, is we always want want to reduce God's standard to such a way where we can feel like that we are accomplishing it to some level. And then say, well, see, see, there's change. There's change. But what, what, of what value is your supposed change when your change still makes you what? Just as guilty because you still are not, have met the standard. So the main thing to always remember is when it comes to God's law, this is now back to law and gospel. When it comes to God's law, what should we never do? We never water it down or reduce its demands. We always let the severity of the law remain severe. Because without the severity of the law, what will never become truly sweet and amazing? The gospel. But we always want to water down the law so that we can feel that we are obeying it, accomplishing it, so that we don't feel bad because we've got to convince ourselves 
that we're somehow accomplishing it. But it was never designed for that. It was designed to condemn us. And over and over and over, what do we see about Israel? I mean, sin, sin. I mean, how many, I mean, how many times have they, it's, it's mentioned they've disobeyed? I don't even know how many times we could go through and count it. But I mean, in some way, shape, or form, it's been repeated continually. All right? Now, this brings us to the last section. What happens in the last section? Here we go. Jeremiah eleven eighteen, And the Lord hath given me knowledge of it, and I know it. Then thou shewest, shewest me their doings. But I was like a lamb or an ox. It, um, but I was like a lamb or an ox that is brought to the slaughter. And I knew not that they had devised devices against me, saying, let us destroy the tree with the fruit thereof. Let us cut him off from the land of the living, that his name may no more be no more remembered. Now, what is happening here in verses 18 to 19? Does anybody know what is happening here? Yes, they, they, this is them. Jeremiah seems to have been given insight, seems to have been given knowledge that the people were planning, conspire, not, and think about it, they were conspiring first against God to do what? To go back to their idolatry. Now it seems that they are conspiring to do what? To get out the prophet. Now you could argue, I, I think theologically, I think we can do this, is I think in both cases they're conspiring was not was against God, right? On one hand, they were conspiring against God's law to go back to the idolatry. On the other hand, they're conspiring against the prophet because they're conspiring against God's warnings. Right? It's not so much about Jeremiah, it's about God. Now, as a pastor, you've got to be careful with that because then you can convince yourself anytime someone conspires against you, they're going after God and because then you can feel even more like you're the righteous one, so you gotta, you got to be careful as a pastor not to fall into that trap because the reality is, is you've got enough sin in your own life that even if they are conspiring against you in a wrong way, you still probably got enough guilt of something. So you know what? You, get, you just kind of have to acknowledge that. But it is true, though, in many cases, that what people are ultimately fighting against is not a person. They're ultimately fighting against God. Does that make sense? Now, again, it's a very dangerous... You understand the danger of how the pastors can use this, right? Because you can argue anytime you argue against a pastor, you're arguing against God. Now, you, you got you to be careful. You got to be careful as a pastor not to fall into that trap because that's like you're, you know, you're, you're protected. But there is a element of that that a lot of times what Christians are really upset with, they're not upset with the message. They're upset with what God says in his word. So... There's always that. It's always hard. For you. That's where each person has to kind of go, what are they really upset about? Well, what are you really upset about? What are you really upset about? In most cases, I think sometimes it's God's word. I don't know. We, we, that could be a long discussion right there. But all right, let's go to verse 20. But O Lord of hosts, that judgest righteously, that triest the reins and the heart, let me see thy vengeance on them, for unto thee I, re I revealed my cause. There, I'll, I'll just stop right there. If we read verse 20, Jeremiah is basically saying, okay, I, I, I know they're coming after me. And so he basically asked God to do what? Go after them. 
go ahead and wipe them out. That's a, yeah, let me see your vengeance on them, right? That's a, I will say it's a bad place. And, and now Judah is God's people, right? This is God's covenant people. It's bad when amongst God's covenant people, whether in the nation of Judah or inside a church where the people want to take out the pastor and the pastor wants God to take out the people, okay? That's a bad place to be. But that's where they are, right? The people want to take out Jeremiah and Jeremiah wants God to take out them. I think maybe things are not so good there, right? Now, what does that demonstrate to you? Once again, it demonstrates even amongst God's people, what do you have? Conflict, problems, and division. It's always been the case. But I think, it, I think there's a dangerous element here, right? Now, I, I, we're going to run out of time, but I, and I, and, uh, I may take up the rest of the time to just deal with it. There's a part here that makes me uncomfortable, but it's a reality within Christianity, right? We, we have a secret weapon as Christians, that secret weapon is no matter what we feel, no matter what we desire, no matter what we think is right or we think is wrong, we always have what as our secret weapon and our debating and our arguing. We always have God and we put God on our side, do we not? This is a dangerous part of some. Now, if you were looking at, if you were sitting in a university class, this is where some professors would talk to you about the danger of religion. Because religion always puts who on their side? God. Right? If it's a social cause, who's on our side? God. If we want books removed from the library, who's on our side? God. If we want laws passed to certain certain groups of people, who's on our side? God. I saw a, I think I may even, I'll have to find it. I think I have it saved. It's a clipping from... um, maybe the 1900s, and it's a group of pastors who posted, a, basically wrote an article for the newspaper and basically using scripture to argue against denying rights to, to African Americans. Uh, yeah, in other words, they were against the African Americans having equal rights. Right? They were denying them their equal rights. Yeah, I said that incorrectly. And when you read it, it's absolutely shocking. Because these are pastors using scripture. We're right to deny them. We're, God is on our side. We need to keep the, and of course they use the word I won't use. We have to keep them separate from us. Using scripture. Using God. I mean, that, that, that happened plenty of times. They would use scripture to, to promote slavery and to defend slavery. Right, but the dangerous part is we all do it to some level. We always think God is on what? Our side. If you're, if, you're, if you're in a church, you're a pastor, and someone wants to argue or debate you or fight you, they will think who is on their side? God. And the pastor will think who's on his side? God. And everyone who takes sides will think who's on their side? God. Everyone thinks God is on their side. 
That is, that is a horrifying thought. Here, I guarantee you both sides think who's on their side. God. Because we read earlier in Jeremiah, that, did the people think they were doing wrong? They thought they were okay. Did the false prophets think they were doing wrong? The false prophets who was preaching to them thought who was on their side? God. Jeremiah thinks who's on his side? God. That, do you know how insane that is? But we're, we're quick to do that, right? You start arguing with someone about any subject, what will a Christian throw in? The Bible says, God says, I win, God's on my side. That's, that's the craziest thing. I, 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 that drives me crazy when Christians especially engage in civil disputes or civil arguments or a culture war because we always quote God's on our side well the other side may be like one I don't believe in your God and two maybe God's on my side and you're like no God's on my side no God's on my side and you're like okay well that that was successful and then everyone will say how do you know God's on your side because the Bible says and then they quote scripture and the other side quotes scripture that's maddening to me. That, like, that is maddening. But it, it should be a warning to, for us to do what? We've got to be very careful when we want to start claiming God is on our side. Because sometimes, think about this, sometimes the issue is this. God becomes nothing more than a tool in our toolbox. Right? We carry a toolbox around. And as soon as we get into an argument with someone, give me a second, you reach in, and you pull out, God, and then you win. And then you put God back in the toolbox until the next time you need to win an argument. Now, the issue isn't whether, uh, the issue has to be that we've got to be willing to acknowledge sometimes that's all we're using God for. We really have to kind of question, are we sure God's on our side? Are we really sure? Because God is not an instrument for you to win an argument. God is not a tool for you to win a debate. Right? That's not what God is for. That's not how it's supposed to play itself out. And typically, whatever you're using God to win an argument against them, that same God you're using also condemns you because you probably have plenty of things wrong in your own life. Right? So we just got to be kind of careful how we, how we apply that and how we do that, right? And, and, and even, uh, yeah, I mean, there's so many issues surrounding it. But this is kind of a concerning thing to me. The people want Jeremiah gone, and Jeremiah wants the people gone. That's, that's really bad, is it not? Verse 21, therefore, thus saith the Lord, of the men of Anathoth that seek thy life, saying, Prophesy not in the name of the Lord that thou die not by our hand. Therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will punish them. The young men shall die by the sword. Their sons and their daughters shall die by famine. Does that not concern you a little bit? Does that not trouble you a little bit? How is this going to go down?
and there shall be no remnant of them, for I will bring evil upon the men of Anathoth, even the year of their visitation. That, that's a, that's a, a horrible way for that to go down, is it not? I mean, I mean, I don't know. you seem. Does that not kind of like? Is there? If there's any other way? Right. And Anathoth, you know, you know An- the significance of Anathoth, right? Jeremiah's hometown. Yeah. His hometown's plotting against him. His hometown's plotting against him. And they're going to be what? Destroyed. Now, this is so, like you just, I, it's hard to wrap, wrap your mind around it. So basically, this is a dispute with one side wanting to go against the other side. And, well, Jeremiah is going to ultimately win the dispute and people are going to die. you like, there's, it's just like on one hand, you're like, it's a religious dispute. It's a dispute over over really theology and it's got to end with people dying like it's a horrible like in my mind that's a horrible thing for it to end and but it's it's sad that sometimes religious disputes end now in this case God's going to be doing it but in in many cases isn't it sad that so many religious disputes throughout history have ended in death right but I'm just saying everyone always thinks they're presenting righteous truth. You know, every side in church history is thought that they're presenting righteous truth. Right? And then pe- people die. Now, in this case, yes, God, we believe God's actively involved. And obviously, we know who is on the right side here. But I'm just saying, when you step back out of this and you just look in the lives of people, the people, if we, if, you know, I, I just came visiting Salem, the people in Salem who put those women to death, and the two dogs and the man they crushed to death, uh, all the people who died, they, the, the people who were doing it thought they were the righteous ones. They thought they were the righteous ones. When the Anabaptists took over the city in Germany, they took it over and, you know, craziness, and finally the Catholics and Lutherans had to work together to recapture the city, and then they killed they captured the Anabaptists, put the leaders up in cages. The cages are still there in Germany. And basically, you know, they kept them there until they starved to death and died and just left them there because they wanted to say, hey, enough of this nonsense. But that was a religious dispute. The, the, during the Protestant Reformation, you have the fighting, people killing each other, literally killing each other. Crusades. We can go on and on and on throughout church history. Spanish Inquisition. There's just these... History is made up of these horrific events where people thought God was on their side and people die. Now here God's actively involved. But isn't it still tragic that God can't find a better solution than people dying? Like you would think there's, come on, God, there's got to be a better way than this. Well, I know, yeah, I know we're right back to that theological, <laughs> I know, it, it's, I know, I know, it's, oh, the whole thing is so just maddening to me, like, it, it's so depressing and discouraging, but I will just end with this since we're out of time, here's what I would, at least from a practical standpoint, because I want to give us something practical here, I think we just have to really ask ourselves, how many times we are using God simply as a weapon to win a debate or an argument? 
because I know we've all, everyone in here has probably done it, right? Now, we don't have any young kids here, so none of the, none of, none of that, anybody can get mad at me, but many Christian parents are guilty of doing that. You don't like something? You don't like what they're doing? What's your ace up the sleeve? God, Scripture. You can throw that down and then you say, you can't do that, you can't do that, you can't go here, you can't do that because, because we're a Christian. You can throw out your Christianity as your explanation for why they can't do that. Well, I understand sometimes that's great, but sometimes it's simply, they feel like then God simply becomes, why, why, why is it that God only works for mom and dad? Because if I was a kid in that situation, I'd have been using God on my side to go against my, I would have flipped it around. Like, well, according to God, you're wrong. I, I would have I would have turned it around. But Christian kids never catch on to that. If they're smart, I would be doing that. I'd flip it around and go, no, mom and dad, God's on my side. You're wrong. I can do this. You're the one in sin. I, I know it doesn't. Okay, well. It should, okay? But no, because if you're the parent, God's always on your side, right? You're always the right. See how, how that works? Even it can work in family life. Where one side gets to use God, I mean, I was never raised in a Christian home, so it's all new to me. But I, I guess those who were raised in a Christian home were telling me it doesn't work. But you would think the kids would be able to say, well, why is God on your side, mom and dad? Why can't he be on my side? Well, I guess Christian parents, y'all just, y'all just shut that down. Oh, okay. Well, that, that's, that's one way of doing it, okay? But I'm saying they could flip it around and say, wait a minute, God's on... Okay. I, I, kind of applaud, I kind of applaud them for doing I kind of applaud them for doing it. Right. So, but, the, but that, that's the main thing I want you to take from... That's the thing I want you to take from it, is that God, that we can use God sometimes as a weapon. Okay, we'll stop. We'll stop right there. All right. Yeah, we're still trying to have church. <laughs> okay. We're a wrap up. All right, let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this morning. Lord, we thank you for the book of Jeremiah. We thank you that we can ask these tough questions and deal with some of the major philosophical complications that this chapter and this book presents. I hope that you would forgive us for how sometimes we simply use you as a weapon to get our own way or to try to enforce our own agenda. Forgive us for that, and uh, may we continue to meditate and think on the words of the book of Jeremiah. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said...